0: Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, hear the word of the Lord. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also must you forgive giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I was texting with a friend of mine. Oh, I don't know. It's been a couple years now. And somehow we began to talk about dreams. And he texted me and he said, Don't you hate that one where you look down and you find you don't have any pants on? And I thought, oh, you have that too? And I've never done a survey about that, but I'm thinking that if I did a survey, that it would be pretty common to have this terrible dream where you look down and you don't have clothes on. And then somehow you have to navigate the uh, the rest of the dream, by finding how to cover yourself in the dream. And why is that a dream that is common among humans? Why would that be? Well, we know from Scripture that ever since just after the first sin, we've been ashamed. We've been ashamed to be exposed in public. And so we've done various things to, to cover up our bodies. The, the clothing also helps us uh, against the elements. And it also helps us to cover up some of those defects that we wouldn't want anyone else to see. So clothing has a number of different different functions. But I'm afraid what I've done to you by chopping up this text the way I have, I've left you in that dream for this last week. Because last week was about the undressed Christian. Last week was all about taking off the the rags of the old life. And the argument as we saw is that if we have participated as Christians, in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, then we are living a new life and we have definitively broken with that old life. And so if we are new people because we have died and risen with Christ, then we need to do a couple of things. We need to take off the rags of that old life that no longer fit us, that no longer correspond to who we are in Christ. And that's what we talked about last week. And we stopped. And so I left us undressed, having taken off, ripped off, stripped off these these rags of the old life. But now we're getting dressed. That's what we do in in this text. We have the put on. Look at verse 12. Put on. We've already seen put to death. We've already seen take off. And now we're going to get dressed. Put on then. And we're going to see that we put on a number of things throughout this text. We put on the attitudes of Christ. We put on the love of Christ. We put on the peace of Christ. We get filled with the Word of Christ. And then we'll see the final purpose of all of that in the final verses of this text. But before we get into these pieces of clothing, as it were, notice how. Paul and Timothy refer to the church, to Christians. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, etc. So he calls Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, he calls Christians God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And if you're familiar with Israel in the Old Testament and God's calling of Israel in the Old Testament you'll notice that that these words apply to Israel these are these are words that rep- apply to the people of God in the Old Testament the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and here with all naturalness and familiarity Paul and Timothy apply these words to Christians who were both Jews and Gentiles and we see all through the New Testament we see this move we see this this daring application of all that applied to Israel, we see it applied to the church of Jesus Christ. And we see all through the New Testament that the church is the the heir, the church is the continuation, the church is the people of God, the church is that holy, called, beloved, elect people of God. And there may be a polemic purpose in that, in that description here, because as we saw in some of the earlier chapters of Colossians, there were false teachers in the church and the false teachers were of a Jewish descent and they were urging the Christians, both Jews and Gentiles to go back to some obsolete rules that had passed away because Christ had fulfilled them and made them obsolete. And so there may be a polemic purpose saying, folks, You, if you're in Christ, if you have died with Christ, if you've risen with Christ, you are already holy, you are beloved, you are God's chosen ones, and you don't go forward by going backward. You don't advance by going back to obsolete rules. And then having identified them as God's people, he says, put on. And you noticed from last week, we saw that there were two sets, two sets of five vices and I'm not sure why this, this, uh, this use of sets of five, but there were two sets of vices. In verse 5, it was put off uh, a set of vices, and then once again in verse 8. So verse 5 of this chapter, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So there are five. Verse 8, But now you must put them all away, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Another group of five vices. The first having to do with inordinate desires. The second group of vices having to do with harmful things that we do to other people. And now, he's saying you've taken off these five, you've cast off these five, and now in their place there are five vices more to put on. And we'll see as well, just like in the five vices or the two sets of five vices, these are related terms. They're overlapping terms. So what are the, what are the pieces that we're to put on here? He says, put on compassionate hearts, bowels of compassion, guts of compassion, that that we would be able to feel for other people in the deepest parts of our souls compassionate hearts kindness humility humility is lowly mindedness lowly mindedness meekness gentleness and patience and patience is an interesting word it's uh, this idea it could be perseverance but it actually could also be translated quite literally from the etymology. It could be translated long-fusedness, long-fusedness. And we already saw that two of the things that we were to put off were anger and wrath, simmering anger and explosive wrath, and now in their place we put on long-fusedness, a a patience with others. And so these these are the kind of things to put on, compassionate hearts, kindness, Lowly-mindedness, meekness, and patience, and this might be something of a surprise. It might be a surprise because this this uh, this uh, word humility, Paul and Timothy have already used it in a negative sense. Because you remember the, the false teachers, what were they doing? They were boasting about how humble they were. They were exalting themselves in their great humility. And they were humble in the sense they were mistreating their own bodies. They were denying themselves food. They were being very rigorous in their asceticism, in their harsh treatment of the body. And so earlier, this same word is used twice in a negative sense, this false humility. But now it's introduced once again. So it's a little bit surprising that, that this shows up here. And it also perhaps is a little bit surprising because we look at these characteristics that we're to put on and these are not characteristics that we would associate with being great, are they? And and in the Roman world, some of these terms that were used that are used here are words that they would despise. These are exactly the last kind of thing that you would want to be, to be meek and to be humble. This is not our idea, this is not the Roman idea of what it means to be great. If you go to a If you go to a motivational speaker, he may tell you to be awesome. He may tell you to be amazing. And here you're told to be lowly minded. You're told to be kind. You're told to be meek. You're told to be patient. You say this doesn't sound so great until you realize that each of these descriptions describes in Scripture either God or Christ. This is how Christ identified himself as as lowly, as meek, as gentle, as taking the last place. And we see that most of all in what he did on the cross for us. So these are the kind of pieces of clothing. And it says that we'll know whether we're putting these on or not, because they'll show up in a couple of areas in our relationships with each other in the church. If we're putting on bowels of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and and long-fusedness. They'll show up in two areas. Verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So how will we know if we're well-dressed? Well, we'll know when people rub us the wrong way or do something against us in the church. That's how we'll know if we're well-dressed. If everything's going fine, we may think we're well-dressed because that's the, because there's no pressure put upon us but when when somebody in the church rubs us the wrong way we'll know that we're well-dressed if we're bearing up with that person if we're putting up with that person and not writing that person off if we're persevering with that person as a brother or sister in Christ and then e- even more difficult than that is forgiving and it says if one has a complaint against Another, And this is assuming that there actually is something to complain about. This is assuming that there really is an offense there. And it says forgiving. Now, now there is some legitimate debate about this question of forgiveness. What do we do if somebody has sinned against us and they don't recognize it? And they don't come and they don't confess because we have instruction in Scripture. If your brother sins against you and comes and and repents that you should forgive him. But what, what if he doesn't? Uh, what if she doesn't? What if what if they don't recognize? And it's, there's a legitimate debate, an important debate about that. And, 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 and it's true that that full forgiveness cannot be transacted without a confession. So for there to be complete restoration of the relationship, th- there does need to be that confession. But but it doesn't mention that here. This, this seems something like a blanket statement. It says that if anyone has a complaint against a brother or sister that that whether or not that that forgiveness has been transacted fully through confession and repentance and asking and, and granting forgiveness, there is this this disposition, there is this heart attitude, there is this commitment to forgive any complaints that we have against others in the Church of Jesus Christ, and then of course the The constant motivation for that, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is an unusual expression. There are a number of those in Colossians. The Lord, almost always in the New Testament, means Jesus. And here it says, the Lord, Jesus, has forgiven you. And that's an unusual expression because usually in the New Testament, it is God who forgives us because of what Christ has done. But here it makes it more personal because Jesus, because the Lord Jesus has forgiven you. Therefore, you ought to forgive those against whom you have any complaint. Jesus told a parable about that, didn't he? He told a parable about the, the servant who owed a vast fortune to the master and he couldn't repay it. And so he just asked for forgiveness, and the, the the Lord said, sure, I'll forgive you. And then that servant went out and found a fellow servant who owed him a significant amount, but nothing in comparison with that vast fortune. And he grabbed him by the throat and said, pay me all that you owe me. And they were grieved because here's a man who had been forgiven such a vast fortune, and he was unwilling to forgive his fellow servant. A small amount. And that's the motivation to forgive each other. These relatively small things, even though for us they may be big, but relatively small things relative in comparison with what Christ has forgiven us. That's the motivation. These are the the pieces, the attitudes, the, the clothing of the new Christian. Now, that's the first thing. And then, as we saw with the vices, we saw that they were these two neat categories of five and five. And then... And then he tacks on others like, oh, and don't lie to each other. So there the symmetry of the five and five gets broken down. And we find the same thing here. So the neat, put on these five things. And then in verse 14, and above all, one more, and above all, put on love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I I don't know how purses work, that sort of thing. Uh, I, I hear women sometimes talking about, well, the purse kind of is the, the crowning touch of the outfit, and it sort of makes everything work. I'm sort of oblivious to that. But uh, I do know how ties work, even though I'm grateful to be in South Florida, where I don't have to wear one often. But but a tie, if, if, if well chosen, it, it brings it all together, the whole outfit, and it, it makes it all fit. And of course, a tie that is badly chosen... It stands out like a sore thumb and it ruins the whole outfit. What's that which ties everything else together? What's that that last piece that we put on so that everything comes together? It's love. And above all, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And here they're more concerned about teaching us than neat symmetry. Because then they go on after that neat five and they say, oh, and one more thing. Put on love. Oh, and also, also let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ be the arbiter in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Now, when we think of the peace of Christ. We could think of that subjectively, that is, that which we experience, inner peace, we could say, or we could think of objectively the peace that Christ has secured with God for his people and it looks like it looks like it's the first of the, or, or the second of those it's the objective peace of Christ that is to say the peace which Christ has achieved for God's people through his death on the cross reconciling us to God reconciling us to each other Jews and Gentiles slave and free Greek barbarian and so on as we saw last week So, that that objective piece, that, that work of Christ, let that be the arbiter, let that be the umpire in your hearts. There's where it becomes subjective, in your hearts as you deal with one another. This is actually, this image is very, very practical. Because here it's talking about a body in which we will have differences with one another. And as I am talking with you and you are talking with me and we have some sort of difference between us, some sort of complaint, some sort of offense. If we say each time you and I, we say, OK, this is this is uh, this is beyond us. We're going to call in a third party. We're going to call in a, an arbiter. We're going to call in someone who will rule here. Well, we're going to call in the peace of Christ. And so everything I say to you and everything you say to me will be overcome, will be ruled by the peace of Christ. Imagine how how conversations would go if the peace of Christ is the arbiter. If the peace of Christ can can raise the yellow card and say, "Up, up, out of line. Let's back up a little bit. Let's start again. Let the peace of Christ be the arbiter in your hearts because he's called us in that peace to one body. And further ruining the symmetry, they, they tack on something here. And be thankful. Let the love of Christ, let the peace of Christ, oh, and, and be thankful. And it looks like it's, it's another thought that, oh, I need to add this and be thankful. This could be translated and become thankful. And that might be more appropriate, isn't it? Because we all need to learn to become thankful. Reading a book, Uh, this past week, by a man named Craig Barnes. It's called The Pastor is Minor Poet. I was actually reading it because I felt like I had to, because it was an assigned book in a course that I'm teaching, and I never read it. So I thought, well, if the students have to read it, I should read it. And so I started reading it quickly to try to get through it, and then I got engrossed in it, and I realized why it's it's assigned for the class. But uh, Pastor Barnes writes this. He says, I doubt That there is such a thing as a measure of spirituality, like one measure of spirituality. But if there is, gratitude would be it. Only the grateful are paying attention. They're grateful because they pay attention and they pay attention because they are so grateful. Are you paying attention? If you're not grateful, it's because you're not paying attention. If you're paying attention, you'll be paying paying attention to what? I started thinking about that. Paying attention to what? Well, if you're paying attention to the news, you're probably grateful that you don't live in Afghanistan, Cuba, or Haiti to start. If you got up this morning and your your lungs were still working and your heart was still beating and you were able to, to think and able to eat and able to put on clothes and had a roof over your head when it rained last night, you're you're probably grateful for those sort of things. But, but those are kind of relatively minor. If you're paying attention to Scripture, you're, you're finding things in Scripture that are that are amazing. That God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Are you paying attention to that? Are you paying attention to the, the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases? His mercies never come to an end. Are you looking at the cross and paying attention to the cross that there the son of God died for the sins of all of his people? Are you paying attention to what happened three days later that he rose from the dead, triumphing over the grave and giving eternal life to all who believe in him? Are you paying attention to the fact that he is reigning at God's right hand and he is bringing his kingdom into this world, and one day the the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? If you're paying attention to those sort of things, then you will learn to be grateful. I know a man, Mr. Kerrigan, he died of uh, cancer probably 10 years or so or so ago. He wasn't that old. I think he was 50s or maybe early 60s. And he was a, a man who was paying attention. And he had terminal cancer. And he was going to die of it. And he knew he was going to die of it. And he died of it. But in the meantime, he was getting treatment. And, and treatment for cancer, as you know, is 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 generally awful. And he was going through treatment to try to give him a little more time. His family wanted him around. And he wanted to be around for them. And he made a, a commitment. He said, whatever they do to me in the hospital, whatever they do to me at the doctor's office, whatever they, they stick me with, whatever they draw out of my body, whatever tubes they put me in, whatever, whatever tests they apply to me, I am going to the say to the person who applies that to me, thank you. Thank you. There's a man who's paying attention. There's a man who is grateful for the fact that he was still alive. Grateful for the fact that he could breathe. Grateful for the fact that his Savior had given him eternal life, and he lived, and he died, with these words on his lips: "Thank you, thank you, thank you." And become thankful. The love of Christ. The peace of Christ. And oh, by the way, become thankful. And then we have a, a different image. A different image here in verse, verse sixteen. Let the word of Christ, this is a unique expression that doesn't show up anywhere else. The word of the Lord shows up in different places, but this is the only time where you find that expression, the, the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So here we've changed the image. What were we doing? We had the image of, of taking off and putting on, but now it's a different image. It's being filled. Let the, the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not a little bit, not scarcely, not barely, but richly. And, and there's no secret. There's no secret to how the Word of Christ can, can dwell in you richly, abundantly. It's it's really quite simple. It's it's read it constantly, meditate on it frequently, and be attentive when it's read and preached. That's pretty much it. it it's, it's not complicated, nor is it even difficult. That's how the word of Christ can dwell in you richly. And if it dwells in you richly, there will be once again two manifestations of that. And let the word of the peace. The, uh, where are we? The 16 let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And here we have the manifestations. If it dwells in us richly, we will do two things. We will teach and admonish one another In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, that is to say it's dwelling in us so abundantly, so richly that when we interact with each other, we have wisdom from the word of Christ in order to instruct one another. And the other manifestation is a constant song that will be going on in our hearts, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with once again, what thankfulness in your heart's to God. Now, it's not quite clear what these three different categories are. Psalms may be the the biblical psalms uh, that we find in the book of Psalms. Hymns may be those sort of authorized songs that the church has passed on. We already saw one of those in in Colossians chapter 1, a a hymn about Christ, something that the church has, has composed and embraced and passed on. And spiritual songs may be those things that we make up uh, as, we're, as we're walking with the Spirit and we just we, these songs just come out of our hearts. It may be that, but whatever there might, these might be, we can see that there's a great deal of variety, isn't there, about what we can sing as long as, it, as long as it connects to the Word of Christ, that the Word of Christ would be so abundant in us that there would be this song in our hearts that would come out of our lips in different ways. Notice here, this, this looks like it's describing what happens in a worship service. And I want you to see what a worship service is composed of. It's composed of the word of Christ. It's composed of teaching and instructing. It's composed of singing. And it's composed of thanksgiving. That's what a worship service is about. With thanksgiving for the second time in your hearts to God. And then verse 17, the final thing. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks for the third time, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So now there's a blanket statement. Whatever you do, whatever it might be, whatever you say, whatever you think, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus and be thankful for the third time. Now, if we apply this principle to whatever we say or do, we'll find that this principle both limits us and liberates us. Because there are a number of things that we couldn't do in good conscience in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? I I criticize you sarcastically in the name of the Lord Jesus. That that doesn't sound right, does it? I I belittle my wife in the name of the Lord Jesus. That that doesn't Go to. I I cheat on my tax returns in the name of the Lord. Wait, this is not working, is it? And so, so it's going to limit us, but it's also going to liberate us because there are many other things, some new things of putting off those things of the old life, putting on the the, the habits of the new life. There are a number of things that now I can do. I can encourage you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I can bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I can tell you about the gospel in the name of the Lord Jesus. I can give from my possessions in the name of the Lord Jesus. I can go be a missionary. I can support missionaries in the name of the Lord Jesus. All these things that I, I, I really never thought about in the past. Now I can do. I'm liberated to do this. I can teach you. I can admonish you. I can instruct you. I can sing with, with songs in my heart and songs coming out of my mouth. All of this in the Lord Jesus. I can love my wife, as we're going to see next week, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So all sorts of new possibilities are opened up for us in the name of the Lord Jesus. So. What's the bottom line? If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus and have died with Christ to the old life and have risen with Christ to the new life, don't let yourself be caught either poorly dressed or undressed. Because this is not a dream. This is reality. And we're playing for keeps here. It's time to get dressed with what? With the attitudes of Christ, with the love of Christ, with the peace of Christ, filled with the word of Christ, so that whatever we do in word or in deed, we can do it in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for showing us last week how poorly dressed we used to be. We thought it was finery, but... You stripped it off and we thank you. Now we see this pile of stinking rags and we don't want any more to do with that. And you show us now the the glorious clothing of the Christian. And I pray for each one of us, oh God, that we would be well-dressed Christians. That we would put on the attitudes of Christ, the love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ so that wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever we say, we would be able to do it in the name of Christ. Oh, Lord, may that characterize us. May it be seen by the way we live our lives that we have died and that we have risen with Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.